And this is this is a problem that high achieving candidate people routinely confront, which is that they they look for the next sort of hurdle to, to leap over. And if there's not an obvious path, that sort of throws you into a bit of confusion. I mean, I, I have a kind of um, thing I throw back at our students here at the National University of Singapore when they're graduating that, um, congratulations, you passed all the exams. Now you set your own exams. And if you're passing all of your own exams and maybe your exams aren't hard enough. Hi there, and welcome to Roads Less Travelled, a series of conversations with some remarkable individuals who have in one way or another taken a road less travelled to discover their vocation. The aim behind the podcast is a pretty simple one, to share stories. And our hope is that through these stories, we can shine a light on some practical wisdom for those of us who are currently forging our own paths. My name is Sophie Ryan, and I'm an Australian Rhodes Scholar in my second year at Oxford. I hope you enjoy the journey. Today's guest is Simon Chesterman, Dean of the National University of Singapore Law School and also Senior Director for AI Governance at AI Singapore. Simon's career has taken him to the United Nations, the highest heights of policy development and international relations, and back to academia, where he has become a thought leader on the topic of public authority in times of crisis. He has published 21 books, two novels, and his most recent book, which is out now, is We the Robots, Regulating Artificial Intelligence and the Limits of the Law. Now, I was particularly excited to talk to Simon for this podcast today, partly because I personally spent a year studying at NUS Law in Singapore, but I never reached out to Simon while I was there for a conversation. So I was really excited to finally have the opportunity to have a chat. I, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Simon, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. Pleasure. It's a real joy for me, actually, to talk to you. I uh, promised in my, my emails initially reaching out that I was particularly excited because I'd spent the time in Singapore studying at NUS and had kind of just admired you from afar as the Australian international lawyer at NUS, but never quite got to meet you. So belatedly, we catch up even at this remote distance. So, uh, so thanks so much for inviting me to be on. Yes, yes. No, thank you for being here. And I actually, to, to start the, the conversation today, I wanted to start with somewhat of an icebreaker as well and to just kind of get a flavour of the day-to-day -day Simon Chesterman and ask you uh, something that your, your friends and family would regard as a particularly you thing to do. I think that so much of who we are is reflected in just our day-to-day -day selves. Um, so it would depend who you ask. If you ask my kids, it would be to come up with an even worse joke uh, than I'd come up with previously. I have a good reputation for dad jokes now. Um, but probably something that actually dates back to when I was at Oxford is um, if I'm grappling with some problem, to go for a run. If I've had a bad day, to go for a run. If I had a good day, to go for a run. If it's raining outside and the weather looks terrible, to go for a run. Uh, so I'm kind of a bit of an obsessive um, jogger, not not a very fast jogger, uh, but I find running serves the function of a kind of meditation for me. It clears my head, forces me not to think about things, uh, which then when you slow down and you recover, uh, gives you a kind of new perspective, uh, paradoxically new energy. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I think is, is something that my wife in particular knows who I met at Oxford, uh, knows that um, she'll say, look, you look like you need to go for a run. 
to the point where when we were living together, when we got married, we were living in New York. Um, I was working. She was um, taking charge of the initial search for accommodation. Uh, and we ended up found, finding an amazing place in, um, in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Uh, and then we arrived and she introduced me to the prospective landlord. And she said, this is Simon. And the guy said, this is Simon. I thought Simon was your dog. Because you kept telling me you needed to be near a park so that Simon could go for a run. <laughs> Uh, so yes, running is a very Simon thing to do, I think. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, the the forest gump of <laughs> of Oxford and wherever you are. <laughs> well, I might also then this this podcast is all about the the road that you've taken in life to to where you are now. And so I, I really I want to jump straight into looking back on your journey and how you've come to be where you are now. Uh, it was useful actually to talk about running as the the starting point and also on that touch on a few places that you've been throughout your journey so far, but. I was hoping you could take us back to to young Simon, and I I know you grew up in in Australia and in Melbourne, I believe. Yes, son of a preacher man in uh, Melbourne. My father was an Anglican priest. My mother was a music school teacher, uh, and grew up around the, the suburbs of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And went to then the University of Melbourne, where you studied arts and law, but via a pit stop in China, I believe. Yeah. So I mean, I grew up. I mean, not my heritage is sort of Anglo-Australian, uh, but grew up at a time when Australia, I think quite rightly, was rethinking its place in the world. So I, I'm the youngest of four boys and one of my eldest brothers also, like me, studied Chinese. The second eldest brother worked in an Indian restaurant. Uh, and I think we sort of all began to sort of see the value of multiculturalism. So I was studying odd combination, Chinese and Latin at secondary school. Uh, at this time when Australia was rethinking its role and place in the world, whether it's part of Asia or whether its future lay with Asia. Uh, and so there were government um, supported and corporate supported scholarships to go and live in China. Uh, so I actually went once to Melbourne's sister city in Tianjin uh, and then to go for a year uh, to live in Beijing to study Chinese language, which I think was a, a really serendipitous thing for me. Uh, because what it meant was that even though I went back to Melbourne to study law, uh, I didn't go into law with the cohort of um, mostly young men that I knew uh, at secondary school, uh, but was forced to sort of remake friendships at university, which I think really broadened my horizons in terms of so in terms of social group. Uh, but the year in China, obviously in that year, I learned a bit about China, but I learned a huge amount about Australia by being out of the country. Uh, and this was the only other country I'd ever been to at the time. Uh, but that experience, I think, really set me on a path that I was interested in comparing things, um, contrasting things, uh, and that's why I think I ended up, ended up gravitating towards international law rather than purely domestic law. Did you know when you when you started out at the University of Melbourne then that did you have your eye on international law or was that something that it was the, the broader comparative focuses, the inter interest in international affairs and multiculturalism that you found yourself gravitating towards it, you just kept being pulled back to it? Or was it something that you had your eyes set on from the get-go? No, I think I was, I was open to various possibilities, but on the arts side, I was studying Chinese and international relations. Uh, so the two things that really drew me to international law were first, yes, the comparative element, the sort of how do you make sense of such a diverse world to have a, a kind of single legal system that is meant to at least govern relations between states historically and increasingly plays more a more important role. 
But the second thing that attracted me to international law was a kind of political or philosophical disposition that the reason I was interested in law in the first place was in understanding power, understanding power dynamics, how power is regulated, um, how resources are allocated. Uh, and there's a kind of legal tradition that basically regards law as an extension of politics. Uh, and international law is just more obviously political. I mean, international law, as you know, Sophie, uh, part of the history of international law is really law struggling to be more than one foreign policy justification among others. So law's claim to law, international law's claim to law has to be continually asserted. Uh, it's not to be taken for granted. Uh, and so I think I was always interested in that dimension as well, the kind of political side. Uh, but it took a few years to sort of really move in that direction, um, helped along the way by some really inspirational teachers at the University of Melbourne, like Jerry Simpson, Tim McCormack, Penny Matthew, Wayne Morgan, uh, Hillary Charlesworth, now Judge Charlesworth, uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, but it was not it was not a kind of 18 year old Simon mapped out his future and knew where it was going to go. Uh, and in fact, I almost didn't go in that direction. I almost um, clerked uh, on the Australian High Court. So I like like many sort of uh, sort of aspiring sort of law students, I was hedging my bets and I was thinking about the possibility of subsequent study. But I also applied to a bunch of judges, uh, and actually Michael Kirby um, flew me up to Sydney for an interview. Uh, and uh, I had an interesting discussion with him. He's a fascinating guy. He spent most of the interview telling me I would hate working for him uh, because he's a terrible boss, uh, not least um, because he's uh, a workaholic in, uh, in the who's who Australia. He lists as his hobbies work. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, I had an interview with him and then flew back to Melbourne and then the opportunity to go and study in England came up. So I withdrew my application. Uh, and then I think it was five or six, maybe seven or eight years later, I met him at a conference, an international law conference, and I sort of introduced himself. So, oh, Justice Kirby, my name is Simon Chesterman. You probably don't remember me. And then he stopped and he introduced me to everyone saying, this is the only man who ever turned me down for a job. And I said, you, you never offered me the job. And he said, well, I was going to. I said, you didn't tell me that. Uh, so that would have been an alternative path that probably might have, might have led to being a barrister or something. But... Uh, but no, I think that that ship has now sailed. I, I always find this so interesting talking to people about all of the potential, the, the sliding doors moments in their careers where one, one decision or even serendipity in one moment led to a completely different path. And so I wonder if we could also talk about other points in your career where, where you've had those kind of moments. So there was before coming to Oxford, the moment where you might have taken a career, a path that took you to the bar potentially. At Oxford, were there, were there moments where you had other paths that tempted you as well? And then after that, I suppose, I'm, I'm really interested as well in talking about, I know that you, you went and you worked at the United Nations for a little bit after you finished at Oxford. And then you went from the, you had the, the kind of, I suppose what we might refer to as the policy pathway open to you there and then you moved over to academia and um and and committed to that path more fully and so I could we unpack some of those moments as well of what led you to make those decisions sure I mean I'm, I'm a big believer that uh life makes much more sense in retrospect than in prospect uh and um I mean along the way the, the best career advice I ever got was um, from uh, a 
colleague who was working in a law firm where I was doing some a summer clerkship, which is what sort of law students sometimes go and work for um, a month or so. And he was leaving the law firm. And I'd got to know him and I asked, well, why are you leaving the law firm? And he said, well, I looked around at the people who'd been there five years, five years longer than I had uh, and said, do I want to be any of you? And I realized, no, I don't. So I'm going to do something else. And I looked around and I said, my God, you're right. I don't want to be any of these people either. So the, um, the, the advice I've taken to heart uh, is to look around for interesting people and try and work out how they got to where they are and not then to stalk them and follow that path, uh, but to try and sort of look at how they made decisions. Uh, and so, okay, back to myself, uh, when I was a student at Oxford, when I was doing graduate study, I kind of knew that I really needed to think about my career at some point. And so the deadline I set for myself was, okay, when I'm getting towards the final year of the doctorate, then I'll look more seriously. Uh, and it was about a year and a month before that, so about a month before my self-imposed deadline that I met actually coincidentally at the same college at Oxford, David Malone, uh, who became my boss at uh, what was then the International Peace Academy, now the International Peace Institute. Uh, he was also doing a doctorate connected to the United Nations. Uh, and then he was going off before me to run this organization. He was trying to recruit people. Uh, and so uh, that, that really was serendipitous. It was a matter of being open to meeting people, open to making connections. Uh, but it also spoke to one of my own kind of more personal reservations, which during the course of the doctorate, I'd also done things like an internship at the War Crimes Tribunal for Rwanda during my second year of the doctorate. Uh, and I explained to my supervisor, okay, I'm doing a doctorate on international law. I propose to go and spend three months in uh, Arusha, Tanzania at the War Crimes Tribunal for Rwanda. And he said, I strongly disapprove. Uh, this was Ian Brownlee, the late, great Ian Brownlee because uh, he basically thought I should just spend time in the library. Uh, but I went and it was incredibly illuminating. It was helpful partly for the thesis, uh, but primarily for thinking about the kind of careers I might be open to. Uh, and it became clear that maybe an operational role in the UN was something I wanted to think carefully about before committing to, uh, because uh, I have enormous respect for the men and women who, who go down that path, live in sort of danger zones, but I was also a little bit troubled by the people who were complaining that Arusha, Tanzania, uh, which most people know as a kind of safari departure town, it's a sleepy little um, base near the, uh, it's not far from Kilimanjaro. Uh, many of the UN staff were complaining how boring it was and they much preferred Somalia when it was a war zone. And I started to think, well, maybe this isn't really my cup of tea. So yeah, I think, I think remaining open to possibilities is important. Uh, and for me, the attraction of working at the International Peace Academy, this what's now IPI, was that it, it gave me two things. Uh, it gave me proximity to the UN uh, and um, in New York, which is all very attractive, uh, but also that my value add was hopefully going to be uh, in a kind of scholarly adjacent area, that I'd be coming up with research projects, writing papers that might change the way people think, hopefully, uh, about problems that were confronting the UN. Uh, and, and the wider world. And so for an idealistic young doctoral student, that sounded fantastic. Uh, and so that was my first move. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that I would like to ask you about all of these steps along the way, I have to say, Simon. I, I think one thing that it really, that resonates with me as well is just the, 
the inability to predict in advance where where you might end up and the requirement to stay open to all of the potential stops on the journey. And it's something that I think with my peers working in international law or wanting to go into work in international law and human rights more generally, that it, that seems to be a particular difficulty in this area as well of not being able to chart out in advance exactly where you might be able to play a role and what you might be able to do. I think that for many people results in taking other pathways that are more predictable and instead of working in that area, they move across to, to accepting, for instance, the, the job at the corporate law firm or whatever it is that has more of a ladder to success. Are you suggesting management consultants aren't saving the world? Oh, never. Never, but I. But it's for me something that's really, really interesting is the the pool of certainty that it has for people, and the fear and the fear of failure. And this is this is a problem that high achieving candidate people routinely confront, which is that they they look for the next sort of hurdle to to leap over, and if there's not an obvious path, that sort of throws you into a bit of confusion. I mean, I. I have a kind of um, thing I throw back at our students here at the National University of Singapore when they're graduating that, um, congratulations, you've passed all the exams, now you set your own exams. And if you're passing all of your own exams and maybe your exams aren't hard enough. Uh, and so for me, the, the, the way I've approached this, and I at least found this useful, is to think of careers, and I would sort of draw out careers, but not as a path, but as a, as a series of forks that if you do this, then it might lead to that. And then there are the other possibilities. And the difficult thing you've got to do is at some point, if you draw that map, okay, well, if I go here, then this happens and here, then this happens, there are all these possibilities. Eventually you do have to start closing doors uh, and shutting off things. Uh, and so that was one of the important realizations I had. I mean, I initially went into the think tank world uh, and that was wonderful because it was halfway, if you like, between policy and academia. So I was not working for the UN, um, and actually that was incredibly liberating because it meant I could be in meetings and saying things that if I was in the UN hierarchy, I would never have been listened to and might have been disciplined for sort of speaking out of turn. But I could say these things because I'm I'm a policy wonk and, and that's your job is to throw out things and if people do them, so be it. Um, but I was also adjacent to the scholarly world because happily my boss uh, respected sort of academics and said, no, you should be writing and publishing in journals in addition to these Sort of policy breaches, you should do books and publish a doctorate and things like that, in addition to organizing these, these workshops. But eventually I realized that um, if you're halfway between the policy world and the academic world, you're not really in either. Uh, so I wasn't obviously the decision maker, so I wasn't the policy leader, uh, nor was I really sort of developing as much as I could have or should have as an academic. Uh, and so I realized the think tank world was a fantastic world for me for a few years but that eventually I needed to choose one way or the other. So yeah, you, you've eventually, you've got to be open to possibilities, but you've also eventually got to start narrowing them down so that you, you have a bit of focus. Mm, I think I'm personally starting to, to move into the area where I realise that I need to start closing the doors too. And it's like, oh no, I can't. Um, I've always operated, I think, on the um, on the mentality of just keep as many doors open as possible and walk through as many of the doors as you can. And so I think I'm starting to enter that stage of 
having to recognize that walking through some doors does inevitably close others and uh that you can be intentional and deliberate about that and so that's actually very very helpful for just me personally at the moment i i wonder now whether we could also talk about who has played a big role for you in in helping you along your journey Oh, wow. Uh, I know, it's a big question. No, 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 this is not an Academy Award speech, but I'm wary of mentioning people because I'll leave out others. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I mean, it's, I mean, parents and so on. Uh, I won't talk family, but um, I mean, English teachers when I was growing up um, in law, I mean, I've mentioned some law professors, but Ian Malkin, anyone who went through the University of Melbourne and took classes with Ian Malkin came out inspired by what education could be uh, and what you could, the, the fire you could light in people. And he was a really inspirational teacher who encouraged me to, to think about teaching any, even when I was at university. Um, so Ian Malkin was one of those teachers. Um, so yeah, Ian Brownlee was, uh, was both an inspiration, but also he was a Yorkshireman. Yorkshireman, he was very gruff. Uh, for three years, he said nothing nice to me. Uh, and then after I'd passed my viva, he said, well, Mr. Chesterman, you appear to have cut the mustard was the nicest thing he'd ever said to me. <laughs> and, the, and then, and partly that was just his personality and partly I think he was, I, I think he recognised uh, that it was what I kind of needed to pull my head in a little bit, uh, to be a little bit less um, um, full of myself. Uh, but uh, so he was incredibly impactful in terms of the, the doctorate. David Malone, I've mentioned, um, my, my boss, uh, my first boss, uh, and, and along the way, I think uh, the thing that many of these people have done, and I'm curious, Sophie, in your own experience, but uh, most people who've gone through, especially a kind of human rights or international law or international organization type pathway, have been helped by people who really had no reason to help you. Uh, people who were incredibly helpful above and beyond. Uh, and so I think that imposes an obligation on you to sort of help people if you can. Um, I realized I could take a bit of a shortcut by setting up a website with everything I could think of in terms of career advice, uh, which is on the website that I, I maintain, simonchesterman.com. Um, but yeah, what's what's always impressed me is the people who would take time to either give you advice, um, read your work, comment on it, um, ask questions, answer questions, uh, and so I suppose trying to make it a bit concrete for anyone who's listening to this for whom it might be useful, the starting point, again, as we were saying earlier, be open, but also ask questions. Um, go up, introduce yourself to people. Um, the point of going to academic conferences, for example, is not just to sit passively in the audience. It's to go up and hassle someone, and I mean, in a polite way, and say, look, I enjoyed this article. What do you think about this? Or this is my doctorate. Any, any kind of feedback? Uh, because that's how you establish connections. That's how you become known, hopefully for good reasons rather than bad reasons. Uh, and also that's how you sort of chance upon suggestions that might plant a seed that might develop into something either immediately or later on. So you've got to be open to these, these things because um, the, the, the path most of us take, uh, if it's set in advance, then it's probably pretty boring. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I also... Something I've been struck by so far in my comparatively very brief career in international law is the tremendous role that certain people have played in this area for me where I have been 
at somewhat of a crossroads. And each time I think often what points me back to international law is that the place that I want to be and make a difference is often someone who it's just there, again, someone who is just so helpful and generous with their time, but also their passion and their optimism and hope that this is a this is an area where you can really have an impact and make a difference. Because I feel like often for me, and particularly at the moment, I mean the the subtext and elephant in the room for our interview is what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. And I often find myself one of the big struggle struggles for me and the in persevering in international law is maintaining that the hope in this is an area where I can do something and make a difference. And so for me, it's often also people who, um, who exemplify that and embody that for me and can find that in this field and this discipline. Have you found that too? And I'm also then interested in the follow-up question of how do you ma- maintain optimism in at the moment and just generally in, in international law and relations at the moment? Yeah, um, I mean, the it, you you have to be kind of idealistic to be an international law person, uh, or to be in an international organisation. Although not everyone is, um, but I'd, I'd take a step back and say, in terms of job satisfaction, uh, one of the things that I've realised over time is that what you're doing is relevant to job satisfaction. Where you're doing it, where you live, and so on, is important. The most important is the people you work with, the people you interact with. And if they give you energy and inspire you, everything's easy or it's easier. Uh, and if they just make your life miserable, then you're doing something wrong where you've got to, you've got to take a, a different path. Um, and I think that that is a privilege because many people take jobs because that's the only way to get food on the table, the roof over their heads and so on. Uh, but if you're in a position where you can choose being around people that inspire and uplift you is a is an enormous benefit. Um, how do you maintain that? Well, I suppose you can be irrationally optimistic, but you can also be rationally optimistic. And there are real reasons for optimism that the world is the world is facing enormous challenges. The ones the ones I'm most worried about are climate change and our relationship with technology. Uh, but in terms of conflict, in terms of um, people intentionally making other people's lives miserable, it's hard to accept, but there is actually good data that shows that we're going in a positive direction. I mean, if you look at the 20th century, the prohibition on the use of force, the end of colonialism, the prohibition of racism and sexism, the rise of human rights is an extraordinary achievement, mostly led by um, idealistic men and women around the world of all colors and faiths, um, saying, look, this is this is the direction we're going to go. Uh, and yes, there are tragedies and complete violations, but if, and this is the danger of recording a podcast when we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine, uh, but the kind of unanimity around the world, when the Taliban comes out against the Russian invasion of Ukraine, not to put the Taliban up on a pedestal or anything, uh, but and even Singapore, where I'm based, Singapore took a, has taken a much harder line because what Russia is doing is so unacceptable. Uh, then, yes, this is a tragedy for Ukraine, and it's uh, it's a nightmare for the people living there. Uh, but it also shows that um, the idea that genocide is no one's business uh, is no longer uh, a tenable position in a way that it kind of was in the 20th century. So all this to say that 
yeah, I mean, we might be irrationally optimistic, but I think there are good reasons for optimism. Uh, even if the ultimate reason is that the failure to be optimistic just drives you crazy or makes you miserable, and you're a much nicer, more interesting person if you're trying to look for the good things in life than, than look for the bad. Something else that I wanted to talk to you about is the, the things that that you do outside of your job as well that seem to bring you a lot of satisfaction. You flagged at the beginning the role of running for you, but I also know, uh, I mean, you've published many books, but also novels, and you write for pleasure, uh, I mean, academically, but outside of it as well. I, I also know that while you were at Oxford, you you wrote a play that was actually directed by Rosamund Pike. And so, yes, yes. Not much, fam- much more famous than either of us. Yes. I think you should always claim that. But I, I wondered what role these these things play outside of your day-to-day job and your nine-to-five job. Well, so, I mean, I was, uh, as a teenager, I wrote two unpublished and unpublishable novels, uh, which I've got, there are only two copies and they're both in this office. I've I've got a scanned copy as well now, but um, uh, I mean, I fancied myself as a writer. I was not a writer as a teenager. Um, But one of the things I've discovered is um, in the law in particular, there are a huge number of closet writers. uh, And I, I have a working theory that it's because lawyers manipulate words for a living um, that we play with words for money to try and win cases and to structure deals and write contracts and so on, uh, that we fancy ourselves very, very good, facile with words uh, and um, and then sort of turn to uh, using that for pleasure. Uh, so for me, it was a mix of that. Plus, um, it was around the time that my own kids were becoming teenagers and reading Harry Potter and Hunger Games and the young adult novels. Uh, and Surprisingly, my my 12 and 13 year old children were not reading uh, Law and Practice of the United Nations, uh, which I gave them when they went to a model UN. They're the only ones that turn up with an 800 page textbook <laughs> on the UN. Um, and so it was partly just a, an effort to try and impress them. Uh, but it, it has been an enormous source of pleasure. But again, the number of times I've gone out and met sort of alumni and so on from the from the law school here. Uh, and I know if, if anyone asks me, oh, how's your book doing? I know they don't mean data protection law in Singapore. They mean the novels. Uh, and <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of lawyers have sort of confessed to me that they've got unpublished novels as well in the drawer that they're now going to dust off. Uh, so it's been an enormous sort of source of pleasure. Um, although actually that the real impact came pre-COVID um, because Singapore is a small environment. I got invited to a, a couple of schools uh, to go and read to sort of secondary school students and, and sometimes primary school students. And the nicest thing I think anyone told me was a parent told me that um, usually usually girls will read much more than boys. Uh, but a parent told me that their son didn't really like reading, but he'd read all three of my uh, the, the trilogy that I wrote, uh, which uh, which was an enormous source of satisfaction. Mm. Uh, and so when people poo-poo young adult literature, um, the fact that kids are reading anything, um, I think, is is uh, wonderful. Uh, and as I said, it was partly just purely personal that my my kids have now uh, read the uh, read at least those books and eventually I'll get them onto law and practice of the UN <laughs> in in time in time I well one last question then for you before we move to some rapid fire questions of what's next on the road for Simon Chesterman do you do you have a, a in between a bunch of novels that you're going to write between young adult fiction and the the well everything that you've written, the 20 books in relation to your academic practice? 
Uh, well, so um, sadly, I have a day job that takes up a bit of time. Uh, but since my work in the last four or five years has, has sort of slowly moved towards artificial intelligence. Uh, and so my kind of vanity project, while I was writing the serious book that's now out, We the Robots, um, I have dabbled in a sort of fictional um, idea, some ideas about what AI might, uh, might, manifest, might manifest as sort of in the near future, sort of speculative fiction. So that, that might develop at some point. Um, but other than that, my, my main sort of pivot is within academic circles, I'm doing what would be called broadly moving to the dark side. So as, as an academic, I'm, I've now been Dean of the Law School at NUS for uh, a decade, uh, and I'm moving into the provost's office. Uh, and so the provost is, this is basically a move into university administration. Uh, and so I'm moving into this interesting new role, uh, doing two things at the university level. Uh, one is uh, running a new college, what's called NUS College, which is a, a kind of um, an honors college across the university. So we'll take some law students, some arts, science, eventually medicine, uh, and we'll bring them all together into a residential environment, not entirely unlike an Oxford college, uh, and try and give them a really rich experience uh, and sort of extracurricular activities and so on. So I'm doing that. Uh, and I'm also taking on a role as vice provost for educational innovation, sort of looking at the ways in which we can sort of rethink the classroom experience, rethink the way we communicate. Because um, like in the, in the early days of the university, the idea was that students came to the university where professors like me possessed knowledge and in exchange for money, I would give them that knowledge. These days, we've all got more information than, uh, than anyone can hold in their heads, in our pockets, in our phones. Uh, and so the role of the university is much more about teaching skills, perspectives, values, and so on. So I'm, I'm really interested to take part in, the, in those debates at a kind of more strategic level, if you like. Uh, so that the, the boring thing is getting involved in university administration Hopefully, the more interesting thing is uh, is dabbling a little bit more in fiction, although I have a little bit less time. Absolutely. Oh, well, that sounds very exciting. I'm I'm struck by all of the chapters in the story that that is your life so far, and it looks like there are quite a few to come that are going to have some interesting turns along the way as well. And uh, I'm looking forward to to watching from afar, especially in the, the NUS context of because I mean, as a beneficiary of the teaching at NUS Law, that's very, very exciting to see just how far, far it might go in innovating beyond what I've already experienced. Um, in terms of rapid fire questions for you now, Simon, to wrap up the conversation. Are you saying my answers have been long-winded? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> my first question for you in the rapid fire, and you don't even have to answer them rapidly, is something that you've learned about yourself in the past year or something more generally that you've learned in the past year? Um, I would say that travel is important, but not as important as I used to think it was. That your ability to connect across boundaries, to connect the way we're connecting today, um, makes international communication a lot easier. And I think moving forward, I'll do a lot more of this, uh, but I will also travel. Uh, but I'll travel more intentionally. Uh, I'll travel less but try and invest more in in what i'm doing uh and and that's that's helpful on a family on the family side as well because time away is, is challenging for those who aren't traveling um so yeah that that would be the the first thing and then secondly just from our lockdown we, we were pretty lucky in Singapore. we had two months of serious lockdown 
I learned that I, it's probably just as well I was never a PE teacher because uh, that was my job at home with the kids to get them running around. And it was okay, but I don't think I would have survived to teaching PE to a large number of students. <laughs> That's brilliant. I, I like the strategy there of um, those two things as well that you've learned. Um, the next question is one person, and you could say two as well if you like, that you'd like to have a meal with, alive or dead, the classic question. Mm. Um, I, I'll say that just because I read his autobiography, the first volume of his autobiography, and I'm so jealous that he both has such an interesting life and writes so well, um, Barack and Michelle Obama, um, that, um, and it would be the pair of them, both professionally and personally, I find them fascinating um, characters, uh, him especially so aware of the, the line he had to tread as the kind of um, breaker of stereotypes and boundaries and ceilings, but how careful he had to be not to fall into the many traps that were laid for him and that he managed to get through it um, with his dignity intact. Um, yeah, I, I would just be fascinated to get to know. I've never met him, uh, but uh, either of them, but I'd be fascinated to, to spend a bit of time with the pair especially now that they're more relaxed and good luck to them. Final question for you. I mean, you've given a few answers to this, I think already in the course of our conversation, but I wondered if you could share if a piece of advice comes to mind that is the best or most useful advice that you've received and that you feel like you just have to pay forward. Right. Well, so this is, this is not going to be relevant for everyone now um, because it's about sort of leadership and management, which are not the same thing. Um, but there's, there's a structural problem in academia uh, that no one becomes an academic because they want to run a faculty or run a university. Most people go into academia because they want to be left alone to do their own thing. Um, but the best advice I got for the kind of herding cats activity that is being a, a leader of academics or a manager of academics, uh, which is applicable to many job situations uh, and indeed any situation where you've got any kind of responsibility for people, so it could, some of this might apply to family situations as well. Uh, and the advice is quite simple. Go into every meeting feeling or suspecting that everyone you meet feels underappreciated. And that has never served me ill. Occasionally it takes up a bit of time, uh, but looking for ways in which you can help, ways in which you can support, advise, mentor, even when you have to be tough with people, um, recognizing that what motivates individuals uh, is, is a complex set of factors. It's not just money, it's not just approval, it's not just self-worth and so on. Uh, it's a whole bag of things. Um, but looking for ways in which you can make people feel better about themselves uh, is, uh, is, is a, uh, I've at least not been, I, I would prefer to be disappointed in someone than to, that, that I overestimated them than disappointed that I underestimated them. Well, Simon, I think we've discussed a lot in this short period of time. I think I have many more questions for you, but we'll draw an end to the conversation there. Thank you so much for your time and for everything that you've shared in the course of this conversation. I've learned a lot and feel like I'm going away renewed and ready for my day, but also the, the coming weeks and months. Well, thank you so much, Sophie. Now go back and finish your doctorate. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Lovely to speak with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Simon.